Welcome, patrons, to Danger Close Enough, the velvet rope section of your new favorite war film podcast, where Katie untucks her shirt tails and unties her cravat. I take off my bra to allow my man boobs to jiggle as God intended, and Dan changes out of the spanks he needlessly wears to exacerbate my body dysmorphia. We're letting loose and having some fun, because sometimes you gotta put on the clown nose and remind them who they're dealing with. This may or may not be what you signed up for, but would hate to disappoint you either way. You might see some entries in this show that perplex you. How could The Big Lebowski qualify as a war film, you will at some point doubtlessly find yourself saying. Well, some of the connections we make here might be tenuous at best, but the real point of this side project is just to have a good time. And to ease you into it, we start off with a banger, of which few could question the validity. If you're here, then you're obviously familiar with our main feed. A member of the fandom we're still toying with a nickname for, but sometimes referred to as Danger Closers. Although to me, that conjures an image of people who listen to Nine Inch Nails whilst engaging in autoerotic asphyxiation. But as a frequent listener, you undoubtedly know my passionately passionate passion for hating on certain filmmakers, and James Cameron is among those at the top of my list. He wasn't always the target of my vitriol. In the past, either because I was in my younger, less discerning years, or because he was better at his job earlier in his career, Cameron actually has made movies that I've genuinely enjoyed. True Lies comes to mind. Today's film is another. It's a classic tale of boy meets girl, a love triangle, with the original twist that the two boys are from the future, and one is a murder robot, while the other was sent there by the girl's as yet unconceived son to ensure that he would actually be born. In the bafflingly specific 80s genre of science fiction movies centering on sons of the future fucking with space-time to get their moms of the past laid by the right father, this one actually predates Back to the Future by one year. It's got more nudity, explosions, death, and special effects, while somehow having at least 93% fewer creepy incest vibes. Some of this movie holds up really well, while other parts look like they were done by Ray Harryhausen's unpaid intern. In a lot of ways, this quintessentially 80s blockbuster was ahead of its time, but it also gets some retroactive credit for aspects that don't come to fruition until its quintessentially 90s sequel. It's quintessequel, if you will. Film is war. Hell is other people. And we talk to love about it. So come with us if you want to live, as we discuss Jim Cam's revolutionary 1984 sci-fi action thriller starring, among other notables, Arnold Schwarzenegger's perfectly chiseled buttocks. The Terminator. Who are you? We are the knights who say... Get to the chopper! Rashid has seen it. This is Danger Close. Enough. Welcome, everyone, to the first entry of our Patreon show, Danger Close Enough. This is our side project where we decided we're going to do pretty much whatever the hell movie we want to do, as long as we can justify that you could basically say it's about some kind of war. But we're going to keep that definition extremely loose. So this is 
not really a war film podcast and we'll kind of watch it grow and see where it goes organically but these first few episodes should be dropping on fourth of july maybe we're a little bit past that but either way happy independence day to all our american listeners happy fourth of july to the british listeners we really have nothing to say to you during this time period (laughs) (laughs) suck it sorry (laughs) don't alienate them on the first episode liam (laughs) Like, they've already joined the Patreon. Like, true. You know. We love all you they guys. They know what they're getting into. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. You'll notice that both the style in which we get into this show and the editing of this is going to be a lot looser and more fun. So that's kind of the idea with this. The editing won't take as long. You won't get quite as much music in here, but you're going to get a lot of fun opinions and a lot of fun films. And we'll see how this goes as it goes along. And we start to add more stuff in here and interact with you guys. But um, yeah, it's going to be a really fun project. We've been wanting to do this since the beginning, but as you guys know, it takes time and it takes work. So we got it out as fast as we could. I'm here today, as usual, with my partners, Katie and Liam. And today I got the honor, since I really have not picked a film yet on our regular feed, at least at the time of this recording, we're still at the end of April here. So I got to pick my most favorite movie from when I was five years old, 1984's The Terminator, a James Cameron masterpiece as far as I'm concerned, and one of Arnold Schwarzenegger's biggest hits. So I'll start it off with Katie to tell us a little bit more about the film. So unlike some of the films we cover, I think it's highly unlikely that most of you haven't seen The Terminator before. On the tiny off chance that you haven't, here's the basics. It's a classic 80s sci-fi action movie about the woman who will birth and guide the savior of humanity, the future man sent back to protect her, and the evil android that has come to kill her. James Cameron directed and co-wrote it with Gail Ann Hurd, and it was the movie that launched him into his now legendary career as a director. From the first, this film was loved by critics and audiences alike, and those that didn't care for it were universally turned off by the violence and gore. But even they admitted it had its good points as an action film. Well, some folks found it a little schlocky, and occasionally the acting is a bit rough, it was thoroughly enjoyed for its relentless pacing, amazing special effects, and Arnold's tireless performance. Cameron's budget was only $6.4 million for this. And think about that in today's day and age where an average action picture is at least $100 million. And he makes every penny of that 6.4 count. The total global box office was just under $80 million, which is an insane take for that budget. And that certainly helped Cameron's career. It won no awards of significance. (laughs) (laughs) But... It spawned an entire franchise that is still getting new entries in the form of films and comic books. And video games. Yep, and video games. Not not a good one yet, but they do put them out. They're going to keep trying, keep trying. And there is a lot to talk about with that. But this time around, we are just going to be focusing on The Terminator from 1984. So, Dan, you told us a little bit about this, but I really want to hear, what was your introduction to this to this movie? This is one of the films my dad introduced me to when I was young. I don't know if my mom's exaggerating when she says it was my favorite movie when I was five years old, but I'm going to take her at her word. So this is probably one where my dad plopped me on the couch on a Sunday. This is in Italy in the in the uh, late 80s. And we sat down and watched it. And then 
my dad would lower his little hand curtain over my eyes whenever some violent scene was coming up. For example, uh, yeah, the very first kill the Terminator has with the uh, punks, I I didn't get to see that scene in full for a while because at the beginning, I just remember hearing the Foley and hearing the uh, crunchy sounds of him punching his hand through or his fist through someone. That was my first experience. Gives him the Kali Ma. Just rips his heart out of his chest. Yeah, so I've just always loved this film. I do have a lot of nostalgia for this film. Now, I'll talk about its flaws. I'm definitely not blind to uh, where the budget wasn't quite enough or where the editing lacked. But overall, I still think I give this film so much credit because you really do have to consider what had been done at the time and what had been attempted at the time. And for a lot of people, my I just turned 38, and people around my age very often have... Sometimes they've seen T2 and haven't seen the first Terminator, but often T2 is their favorite, and most people prefer T2 to T1. So I'm the very rare member, possibly captain of the, I think T1 is, well, I'm not going to say it's a better film than T2, but I personally enjoy it more than T2, and that has to do with its sort of relentless pacing and the horror and gritty dark feel that it has. And I really love seeing Arnold just embrace the bad guy, but the bad guy as a cold killing machine. I just really love what he did with it. I've watched a lot of the behind the scenes interviews and stuff, and you can hear about his process. And there's actually surprisingly a lot more acting, a lot more thought went into the performance than you would think. And yeah, my love for this film is just endless. Also, Michael Bean is definitely the screen man who I have the biggest hots for. If you took me back to 1984 and I got one shot with a dude, it's definitely Michael Bean from this movie. <laughs> He's amazing. Is he Kyle Reese? He's Kyle yes. Reese. Uh-huh. Yep. He had an excellent butt. He does. He's just an excellent look. All excellent around. all around. Even with that very 80s haircut he's got going on. <laughs> right. And we'll we'll get into this more, but I think that the juxtaposition of his body and Arnold's body like works so well for the plot and for those characters. And yeah, I could go on forever, but I'll stop for now. I fucking absolutely love this movie. <laughs> so Liam, what was your first exposure to the Terminator? Uh, you know, I don't remember when I saw it, but I am possibly the lone example in captivity of uh, somebody who has seen Terminator 1 and not T2 Judgment Day. Especially for our age group, I think. You are yeah. an extremely rare bird, and I that's really cool. Now, I've seen bits and pieces of Judgment Day here and there, but like I've never sat down to watch the movie. I think I've seen the clip where the kid tells him the line hasta la vista baby. Like, I mm. think I've seen that. I think they're like around a picnic table. They're outside something like that, but they're just, he's hanging out with this murder robot and uh, he's teaching him early nineties slang, West coast slang, I guess. I don't Must know. Must have been. Chill out. Dick what? That's great. See, you're getting it. I, I think I've seen that scene like three times, but I've never sat down and watched the movie. This one I watched once a long time ago. This is your second viewing? This is my second viewing. Wow. I think the first viewing was when I was in high school. So it's my first viewing this millennia. Wow. For me, 
oddly enough, growing up, my mom was really weird about uh, what I got to watch and what I didn't watch and what she showed me. And most of it just relied on what time, like how old I was and where she was at with watching her action movies. Because I'll tell you, I watched True Lies when I was like right after it came out on video. But I didn't see this one until like four or five years ago. I finally went on this binge of just watching all these action movies. Oh, interesting. So you guys are both newcomers to this compared to what And I hadn't seen, I watched them in order. So I watched this, then I watched T2, and I think I've seen Terminator 3 and parts of some of the other ones. But You'd be forgiven if you forgot whether you've seen any of the other ones because they're very Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if I have because I don't remember seeing Christian Bale. Isn't Christian Bale in, in the third one? No, he's in the fourth one. Mm-hmm. The fourth one, okay. Salvation. Salvation. See, I know that. I know my Christian Bale. And by the way, because I want our patrons to get their full money's worth and to have this be completely flawless in all respects, I know I said millennia when it should have been millennium. (laughs) Millennia is the plural. I was thinking about that, but I was like, oh, I can't wait to publish this just like it is. And I'm I'm just going to throw it out there that the wrong word came out and that happens to the best of us and to me. Patrons, you can't hear any of this because Dan removed all of it and Liam's mistake is front and center. I'm even going to raise the volume for it. I'm going yes. to I'm going to keep on repeating that so you're not going to have much of an episode left. It's just going to just going to throw it in there periodically at the end mm-hmm. like I know it's millennium. <laughs> anyway, so I really enjoyed it and was surprised because and this second time around watching was yesterday and I actually finished it just a couple hours ago and there's some stuff that you just really remember the scenes that hit with you, but I was surprised that some of the stuff I didn't remember. And I was like, wow, this movie is a lot better than I even, and I loved it when I first saw it. I was like, this is even better than I remember it being. So it's, and it's very James Cameron. Holy buckets. I remember all the nudity. Yeah. The nudity stuck with me. So I remember every rippling, shadowy butt cheek. I remember both breasts. I was thinking that I put it in my notes. I took copious amounts of notes for this one, and most of them are quite funny, in my opinion. And one of them was, I think it was, decent sex scene. (laughs) Yeah. Because I judge sex scenes very, very strictly. And if I don't think they're actually enjoying themselves and they're supposed to be, mm -mm, you fail. Oh, no, they looked bored to me. This was a thing that was obligatory in the 80s uh, and early 90s was you couldn't really have an action movie without a sex scene that was backlit in blue light. Mm -hmm. Top Gun has one. This has one. Uh, It really kind of died in the early 90s. The last one I distinctly remember was Dances with Wolves had one. That tracks. But like, I don't know if that killed it. Or if, like, I just wasn't at the time allowed to see the other movies that had them. It's just because we became prudish. Yeah, after Dances with Wolves did it, I feel like the ones in PG-13 movies got shorter and more chaste. And the ones in R-rated movies, I think this is what did it. I think it was the combination of... Dances with Wolves doing a a fairly intense one in a PG-13 movie without nudity. But what year did Basic Instinct come out? Was that around the same time? Was that was that also I know it was so, early 90s. Was yeah. it like 94? Yeah, it's around that. 1992. 
1992. Okay, so like the very next year, so or or two years after. I think that something happened where R-rated movies that had nudity, the the sex became the pivotal plot point. So it was like there were then R-rated movies, and then there were R-rated sexy movies like Basic Instinct and Sliver, and you know what changed things actually is um what was Gremlins 1989. Sounds about right. 1984. 1984. That was when they, that was the introduction of the PG-13 rating. Exactly. And I think that is what um, shifted things a lot because now the MPAA, who up until very recently and even now maintains a tight control over what's acceptable to show in movies and what's not. And if you, if you get more than an R rating with them, like your movie's never going to make it anywhere. I mean- Stream with streaming, that's changed a little bit, but for the most part, this is due to the PG 13 rating and the MPAA. They're the people who do ratings. Well, the MPAA sucks, they and, do. And They're MPAA, terrible. I, I will go on record saying that they collectively should go perform a physical impossibility upon themselves, <laughs> <laughs> but that's still like a 10 year span of tits a go go, right? And then it winds down, and then it just like immediately winds down to the point where they're. If you are going to see nudity in a movie, it's going to be a movie where the sex is the central, like dangerous sex is going to be the central plot point. Right. Right. And I don't know what exactly happened with that because sex survived the Reagan era, but the Clinton era where even the president was getting (laughs) blowjobs. That's when we had to like separate the sex movies from the regular action. Interesting. That's weird, isn't it? But I think that this is an example of why that's so shitty because in this one, like it's not a big part of it, but it's also integral to the movie because that's where we get John Connor. That's, you know, their sex scene is what makes that baby. And they only have sex once. It's very, I mean, I know you think they look bored, Liam, and I'm, I don't dispute that necessarily. I, I'll dispute it. But they but also look like they're they are performing passion. And like the line she says at the end where we lived, you know, we only knew each other for a few hours, but we lived a lifetime's worth of love, like that kind of thing. Yeah, that makes sense. That's just dripping James Cameron right there. That was the worst line. I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Oh, God. But there are good love lines in this movie, too, I will argue. We'll get to that. There are. And we. I, I will get to my issues with the dialogue. Like, I like this movie because it is pretty well-rounded. I mean, it does have a lot of... It's very much an action movie, and there's a ton of gore. But it's not Verhoeven-level gore. Like, we're not talking RoboCop here. And it taps into being a drama. There's quite a few moments of really good comedy in this. And the love story that it has is both integral to the film, but it doesn't take away from it in any way. And it feels fairly natural. You know, these two people going through this really traumatic event and they fall in love and then sadness happens. Also, you're like, you know, running around and someone's trying to kill you and a half naked Michael Bean saves you. I mean, come on. Right. How can you possibly? And then he tells you about how he came (laughs) from the future to save you. I mean, how could you possibly resist him? And he's never loved anyone before. Only you. Oh, yeah. People take it a little bit far in arguing that that dialogue makes him a virgin. 
which I guess if you buy that, then that kind of explains the sex scene. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I always took it as he just never had a steady girl. Like he never had a relationship. I thought he was doing it with that girl that got blown up in the flashback forward. She was a fellow, fellow soldier. soldier. That was just the. Katie gets it. Jinx. That's the vibe I got, though. <laughs> From what? I you didn't gotta, get like, that. You got to throw in some proof. The looks they were giving each other. Mm. I think they just had maybe um, an intense relationship. Like an intense relationship because they're both soldiers in a in a difficult. I think every girlfriend that he had got blown up by Terminators, and so Could like he that. just never formed any serious attachment to them. That is quite likely. I just don't see any indication that that was one of them. And also, James Cameron is a fan because he's done it several times. Of and, and you got to give him credit for this. James Cameron is strangely. Even though it seems he treats his staff like shit, or at least his movies are not fun to be working with him on, especially later on from what I've read. No. But he has often done these platonic relationships between men and women who, like, maybe, okay, like, Ripley and Hicks have their moments, but it's never consummated. They don't kiss. Maybe he just doesn't want Michael Bean to get laid. Like, he gives them that one in in this, and then it's just like, other than that... Never again. Never again. Just Linda Hamilton. He does the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) I just love seeing like the gears turning in your mind Uh, as you process like whatever insane fucking thing comes out of my mouth. It's fun. Yeah, I've now been completely thrown off. I don't even remember what I was saying. But James Cameron is not one to pigeonhole love stories in between characters simply because they're male and female. That is just not a signature that he has had. I am going to specifically not refute you, although I would like to, but I established this rule for myself that in talking about a James Cameron movie, just an unofficial rule for me, and we can all share in this if we like, but just to add an element of danger, (laughs) every time I mention the movie Titanic, except for this time. I have to remove an article of clothing. (laughs) That's the only way I can stop myself from just thinking James Cameron, shitty overblown boat movie. Oh yeah, for sure. Avatar is my James Cameron. Like what? Why? But, uh, but I was, I was a teen girl when Titanic came out. And although I didn't see it nearly as many times as my friends did, it was a lot. It was a lot. (laughs) The new catchphrase in my relationship currently, because Jackie and I have watched a lot of James Cameron in the last couple of years, or in the last year, and especially after Titanic, because we did watch that recently. So you said it, you have to take, you guys have to. I did not agree to this. I know, I'm just saying. (laughs) But the catchphrase with us is fucking James Cameron, because we use it for good and for bad, because all of his movies pretty much have things that. You look at it and you're like, man, that was just really well done. I just can't deny that the way this action scene came together or the way this special effect was done or this particular line, because his dialogue is always hit or miss. There's always like great lines and then there's always terrible cheese in there. And so we just go back and forth on, you know, something great comes up and you're like, I want to hate him, but fucking James Cameron did it again. And then, of course, the cheese comes in and you're like, fucking James Cameron. Like, I want to just love you and I want you to be the best director ever. But then you like always ruin it. So like, that's the that's the thing that we constantly say. So here's my question. Give me an example in Terminator of the best line ever. (laughs) 
Come with me if you want to live. That's a really good line. I'm sorry, it's pretty no, that's great. That's a classic line, but it doesn't like everybody knowing it and it being repeated by like other things doesn't make it inherently great. And that's not why I'm saying that. Okay. No. Okay. No. That's not why either of us are saying that. I think that's objectively a great line. Probably the most recognizable line in the movie that like if you've never seen this movie before, apart from I'll be back. Or I'm sorry, I'll be Bach. Which is T2. No, no, it's in this it's in oh, this is one. Oh, it's in this one. Hasta oh, la vista shit. baby is is in T2. T2. That's right. This That's one right. is I'll be Bach. They actually didn't even play that for laughs in this film. They didn't realize that that was going to end up being funny and end up getting repeated. Exactly. But like you hear it. So you ever go back and before you start, I know the answer is no. But you ever go back and watch like the original Scarface from like the 30s or any of those old like. Oh, I've never seen the original. I think I actually have seen the original. Like Little Caesar, any of the old Edward G. Robinson stuff. And you realize that like. Every single shitty gangster cliche comes from those two movies. Oh, yes. No, oh, interesting. Like the dirty rat, the like all all of those things. I can hear Robinson saying it in my head right yeah, now. It's, it's it's all either something that was coined by Edward G. Robinson or James Cagney. Mm-hmm. And when they came out, they were not cliche. They were fresh. Right. But it like you go back and you watch it now and you're like, man, this packed all the cliches into this into this movie. But they weren't cliches. And that's what I'm saying with this line. I'm so I'm saying is it works on an immediate level of especially with what follows afterwards. Because he does he sacrifices his life, but she he he saves her. So I think it works really well and it's it's cliched because it's so good. I'm not saying it's a bad line. It's one of those that you know that it's iconic because it's been copied and everything and you know it from like 10 other things yeah no this is bullshit i'm gonna call you out on this liam that line is (laughs) that line is iconic because it's been copied because it was a great line well no all i'm saying is i don't know that that line would have stuck out to me as a great line if i was sitting in the theater watching it for the first time it definitely would have to me it's a perfectly serviceable line i'm not saying the line's bad Listen, here's the thing. You are not talking to someone who is blinded by nostalgia and cannot see the bad things. I will get into it. I have a lot of criticisms about this film. And I'm I will not go even through saying li- it's a bad line. I'm not saying it's a bad line. Well, you haven't even let us finish telling you what all the good lines of this film are because you've been going off about this one. Well, no, I'm just saying like this one didn't strike me as a particularly good line. Do I need to separate you two? No, no. This is. I'm just. <laughs> I knew I was going to let Liam have it on this episode. So this is just the beginning of this. But please. <laughs> God, I love it. <laughs> and uh, by the way, before we dive into this movie, I have the best story, which I would guess Dan might know, but probably not Liam. Hang on, I'm gonna grant I'm gonna grant Liam's wish of taking off an article of clothing. There you go. I'm, you oh got I'm getting I'm getting heated up now. All the male attracted people in our audience are are fanning themselves right now. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> okay, so for me, I heard about this before I ever watched the Terminator. So, Dan, are you familiar with the Harlan Ellison story? No, I was going to ask you about that because I see the thanks at the end, and I know he's he was a um, he was a Twilight Zone writer, right? He was the Outer Limits, and he wrote for Star Trek. Okay, so Harlan Ellison is a crazy prolific short story writer. Like he was a short story writer during what's called the New Wave. 
um, where there's the grand old men of sci-fi where like Isaac Asimov who were publishing in the 30s, 40s and 50s. And then there was the new wave, which was people who made it weird. And Harlan Ellison is one of those people. He is a very brash, very or he was he's passed on now. Very brash, very abrasive, very difficult to get along with man. And he was incredibly, incredibly litigious. But he was also a fucking genius when it came to story ideas. Like for those of you who are Star Trek fans, if you've ever watched the original series episode, The City on the Edge of Forever, where Kirk and Spock go back in time, that was Ellison. And it's widely considered the best Star Trek original series episode. So he did an episode of The Outer Limits and wrote a short story called, I think, The Soldier. And it kind of incorporated some of these ideas of a android, thank you, brain, <laughs> coming back from the past. A cyborg. Yeah, that was what I kept wanting to say, but it's not a cyborg. A cyborg is a human with mechanical attachments. An android is an entirely... It's not what they call him in this. He's a, a robot with living attachments. They're wrong. They do call him a cybernetic organism. They do call him a cyborg in this. The Terminator's an infiltration unit. Part man, part machine. Underneath, it's a hyperalloy combat chassis. Microprocessor controlled. Fully armored. Very tough. But outside, it's living human tissue. Flesh, skin, hair, blood grown for the cyborgs. But he is... By the strict sci-fi definitions, he's not a cyborg. <laughs> Sorry for my... Nope, I'm a huge sci-fi nut. So that's... Those are the differences. They can't see you pushing your glasses up on your nose right now, but it's... Data is an android. Cyborg from Teen Titans is a cyborg. Someone who starts out as a human, but eventually becomes part robot. Anyway, so Harlan Ellison writes these stories, and I did some research about it. Colloquially, what happened is apocryphally. Is that the word, Liam? Apocryphally, yes. Cameron was at a party. And just talking to someone about the Terminator shortly after the film came out and mentioned, oh, yeah, I just ripped this off, ripped off this idea from the Outer Limits and went with it. And that person told Harlan Ellison. Harlan Ellison watched the movie, proceeded to sue the shit out of Cameron and the production company. And Cameron says that he had to sign it. He didn't agree with any of it, but he had to sign it or the studio was going to make him pay for any costs associated with the lawsuit. So if they lost, Cameron would be liable for any and all judgments awarded to Ellison. So Cameron was like, fine, whatever. So they gave Ellison a settlement and they have to put his name at the end of the movie as special acknowledgement. To the works of Harlan Ellison, yeah. It's fascinating because Harlan Ellison just has this little, it's like he's hanging on by a by a thread to the Terminator series as it threads its way. Because I think he gets an acknowledgement in every single thing. Like how oh, nice. Even if Cameron doesn't write it, he still gets a credit for it as creator, um, characters created by. Well, that's good because honestly, I love everything about that story because- Isn't it great? Unequivocally, fuck James Cameron. Disclaimer. Harlan Ellison was a terrible person who was known for assaulting women and being a misogynist fucking jackass. So I did not support that part of it, but had to get that disclaimer out there. You've got to. That being said, still fuck James Cameron. I just ripped this off of an episode of The Outer Limits. Like, mm. we know. We know that's what you do. <laughs> Here's my problem with James Cameron, and it's evident in his newer works but it's also evident in this one. 
And this is so. Uh, Dan, to be clear, I want to hear your reaction to that story too. But go ahead. You know what? You 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 go ahead because I'm gonna I'm gonna rev up for a bit. You you take off. Yeah, I want. So, what do you think of that, Dan? You hadn't heard any of this before. Um, no, and I actually, I just ran out of time. I was going to look him up because I noticed his name at the end. I was watching kind of a making of. So that's interesting. I'd, I'm not surprised that James Cameron is ripping ideas off of other people. However, I think very often people like to throw creators under this like plagiarism bus as if as if ideas didn't develop out of other ideas. And I think that's kind of bullshit. Like I've seen people do it with Inception. Someone basically said, uh, many people online say that um, Christopher Nolan completely ripped that idea off of this anime from the early 90s, et cetera, et cetera. Paprika. Oh, Paprika. I've, I've seen you. that movie, actually. That's right. one of my favorite anime directors. And no, <laughs> this is my response. I agree. No. I went back and watched that and I was like, okay, there are some similar elements here, but this film is like so different in feel and where it goes and just everything about it that I just completely disagree with that. Music works this way too. Like, good luck finding an artist that didn't sample from something else or grew up on a certain type of music and wasn't completely inspired from that. I believe that James Cameron got most of the idea from this in a fever dream he was having where like a mechanical robot rose out of some flames and was trying to kill him. And famously, he's been quoted as saying that he didn't like dreams because he thought dreams were uninteresting, but nightmares he could get really good ideas out of. And I love that concept. And this film definitely feels like a nightmare in that way. Exactly. That was totally what I was going to say. This so feels like at some points, this is kind of a horror movie. Oh, for sure. He just keeps coming. That Terminator is out there. It can't be bargained with. It can't be reasoned with. It doesn't feel pity or remorse or fear. And it absolutely will not stop ever until you are dead. Yeah, this definitely has a, I can keep running, but I can't hide and I'm never going to get away from this thing until we kill it or it kills us. Like it definitely has that relentless pacing kind of thing. I mean, one of the things this did best was to put Sarah in a police station with 30 cops and then to have the Terminator come in and wreck fucking shop. Like that was such a great idea because it's like you feel the safety, you know, Lance Henriksen is there. He'll protect me. And famously, he was supposed to be the Terminator originally. Oh, was he? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my so God. Schwarzenegger was originally supposed to be Kyle Reese. That's what he was getting. That would have sucked. Um, that's what the part, because he was, you know, he was the good guy. He was used to being the good guy. There was a lot of, you know, he was afraid of the PR. His agent was like, you can't play the bad guy. Like, it's going to do terrible things for your career, etc." How was Arnold's English at this point? Better than Conan. Better than Conan. Because I know, like, Hercules in New York, he couldn't speak English at all. They had to overdub him. That was, his, I think, his first film. Really? They dubbed him in that? I didn't yeah. know that. I think at this point, he'd been here for a while. Yeah. They, well, I think you can get the original version, but they, when it was released, they overdubbed him with somebody else's voice. Right. No, I mean, g- good enough that he could read lines. <laughs> I mean, it was it was 14 years after the making, after the release of Hercules in New York. Mm-hmm. So he'd obviously been here for quite a while. Yeah. Even though this, other than Conan, this is really his first big movie. Right. And he was the first 
once they attached him to the film, then they were like, okay, now we can cast everything else. They went into the meeting, him and Cameron, you know, wanting him to play Kyle Reese. And it just like wasn't feeling right. But the more Arnold saw kind of Cameron's uh, concept art and the ideas behind it, he was like, I really like this Terminator character and I've never really played a bad guy. I think I would be good for that. So the original concept for the Terminator was to do this like five foot eight, five foot 10, every man, which would have been Lance Henriksen to blend in with society. And so to be able to assassinate people without sticking out when Arnold, obviously quite the op, the most opposite you could get from blending in both his body and his voice came around and they decided to go that way. The concept changed to sort of what if a machine was trying to make the ultimate version of a human physically, what would that look like? That would look like Arnold. Whereas, and of course, then Michael Bean being cast was the perfect juxtaposition to that because Michael Bean gives you all the feeling of strength and agility and like a Vitruvian man, like kind of perfect proportions. Like if you wanted to be in really good shape to be able to run and climb and survive as like a primordial human, Michael Bean in 1984 is that body. Like Arnold wouldn't do well in the wild. Like what's he going to do? He can't run after things. He's a bodybuilder. Exactly. He's a bodybuilder on steroids at the height of his career, which of course, when we do T2, we'll talk about the work that he did eight years later to get into like the identical shape. And that's, it is pretty impressive because he wasn't in that shape before he got cast. And he got, and when you see the opening to T2, you're like, holy shit, he looks exactly the same. Like he looks just as ripped, same size. But anyways, I love that concept. And while this wasn't by design, I think they were able to write off because a lot of people are like, why does this robot have an Austrian accent? But they were able to write that off in that Skynet in the future was sort of like not that good at this. They were good at killing shit and waging war and technologically overcoming humans, but they weren't really that good at creating a human. So his accent is sort of their botched attempt at like someone speaking English, which I think not like it doesn't, it, that's not officially canon. That's just kind of like things I've heard in interviews. And I'm like, that works the, the great. The collective headcanon. Does not hold together. That does not <laughs> hold together because he is able to imitate other humans. He's able to imitate other humans' voices and speech it's, patterns. It's his default. <laughs> it's his default voice. And it's terrifying. <laughs> oh, I agree. It's perfect. That's one of the reasons that this movie is so different from the rest of the series because there's no there's no guidelines, there's no like lore that they have to follow. He, like and there really isn't a whole lot of lore set up in this because it doesn't really need it. Like we get a lot of flashbacks to well, flash forwards. We get an aw- a lot of awesome lines that James Cameron wrote, which I will continue. I will keep going back to in a second. All right. Yeah. You, you keep coming back to that, (laughs) but I think it works so well because there's this one works so well for me because it doesn't have any of those limitations and it doesn't need to make the story fit the lore. It's just going and that works so well. And it's very simplistic. It doesn't need to give you all this background other than to, illustrate why this is so important and what's shaped Kyle Reese as a character. Here's one that just I absolutely love. And it's even written with different punctuation in the quote than the way I would read it. I have to read the original script to see where the punctuation is because it actually makes a difference. But where else 
but in this situation, could you get away with this line, which grammatically doesn't make sense, but for the story of a time traveler, it's perfect. It was a nuclear war. A few years from now, all this, this whole place, everything, it's gone. Just gone. There was a nuclear war in the past, a few years from now in the future. Now, IMDb writes that as there was nuclear war, period. A few years from now, all this, this whole place, everything, it's gone, blah, blah, blah. But I'm going to give credit where credit is due that I think they did that wrong. And the line is actually, there was a nuclear war a few years from now, period. I think that's a brilliant fucking line. Liam? Let's hear it, Liam. Come on. You can't write a line like that. Bet me money. <laughs> We've heard Liam's intros. He can write the, no, he can write that's the true. So my, my only thing with that is, and it's not, again, it's not that it's a bad line. It's, it's I'd call it clever, but not brilliant. It, it's part of, they actually call attention to it in other dialogue. So it's not like just this one-off thing that he's like adjusting to. It's like, she's like, you need to stop referring to my future in the past tense. It's a specific choice that they made for how this character was going to talk. And as far as that goes, that's sure. That's good writing to, to have a character that is having that kind of like difficulty keeping their, their temporal confusion is the way I would describe yeah. temporal confusion, keeping their timeline straight. I think this is one of the first, like not disregarding the sci-fi that comes before it because the 1950s were a time of ton of great schlocky sci-fi. But like this is the first movie that really popularizes the idea of time travel and having to have that temporal dialogue where you're very particular about your tenses. And I think Cameron works that really well in this. And I think so much of the little stuff he does so well. How much of this do we know did he write? Because he co-wrote it with Gail Ann Hurd. Gail Ann Hurd, yes. Mm-hmm. Do we do we have any backstory on like who who did what? Is it an and credit or is it an an and symbol credit? They are co-equal writers in this. And there's a third person, too, who helped with some of the dialogue. Who did uh, script doctoring after the fact. Right. Didn't he? But Gail mm-hmm. Ann Hurd was mostly a producer, and she did write Terminator Genesis. Oh, God. Yeah. So whatever, <laughs> whatever that says for you. I mean, it is Genesis, but it is spelled super. I, I, it's Genesis. It That's will never fine. be anything. It is but- the stupidest way you could spell that word. As soon as I saw that, I was like, I'm disgusted just by the way they chose to spell this. But <laughs> otherwise, like seriously, I'm looking at her IMDb credits right now, and it's literally the Terminator, the Terminator video game, which apparently came out in 1991, RoboCop versus the Terminator video game, Jesus, and many other Terminator video games, along with a bunch of episodes of the Sarah Connor Chronicles, and which I heard were terrible. And then apparently now she's writing for the Aeon Flux TV series that's been announced. Mm. <laughs> so this isn't this is someone who's more of a production person, sure, rather than a writer. Yeah, I'm gonna give most credit to Cameron here in terms of the writing because some of the lines are terrible, and that totally fits with Cameron. Cameron is a mixed bag, and you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I mean, you can, but then well, you- yeah, you can because the mixed bag is terrible. And okay. oh, I disagree. I think it's terrible and exceptional. It just, it's just I think it's he- never exceptional. It's never, never a single time has he written an exceptional line. 
I think he works on two polar opposites. I mean, he honest to God doesn't give a shit about dialogue. He could not possibly care less. He's too intent on playing with his new toys. Mm, that's a little bit of a fair criticism for sure. He really does love playing with his toys. Even watching this. So this is this is pretty much what I was going to say before, but it's it's not necessarily a bad thing in this instance because there's there's part of me that sort of longs for a time when going to see a new special effect or a, a new ingenious way of pulling off a special effect, especially in a practical sense, could bring in a crowd. Oh, yeah. And this time period was rife with those kind of movies. It's like now it really doesn't matter what kind of explosions your movie has because they're all CGI explosions. Like because everything is is computer generated now, it really I mean, sure, in a lot of cases, it can look better than the stop motion Terminator skeleton coming at them against a like a mat cut screen where they're closing a door like that looked bad, but that looked bad today. I don't know if it looked bad in 1984. No, it definitely did, because the stop motion in Metropolis in 1927 is amazing. And I can tell you exactly why it's good in that film and terrible in The Terminator. It's money. It's a matter of money. Frame rate as well. but Right. But frame rate in stop motion equals money. Yes. That's all time and personnel. Let's give credit to Stan Winston for the physical effects in here. Like I'm a shit on Stan Winston, too. Just, oh, just you oh. wait, but go ahead. You're going to shit on my boy? Jesus. Well, he's another mixed bag. He did some great things. And then the editing on this movie is so terrible that they did not take advantage. They they did not use some of the special effects. Some of them they did brilliantly. And I'll talk about that. And some of them, if you had just edited those scenes a little bit tighter, it would have been way better because you could have gotten away from some of the old bad special effects. But again, we'll get into it. That's not Stan Winston's fault. <laughs> Stan Winston was not the editor. He did the he did the special effects and like that the scene where Arnold cuts into his own arm, Chef's kiss. Yeah, it's that great. is beautiful. The arm effect was great, and that was that was actually the moment where I was having this thought that was like that must have been absolutely goddamn mind blowing in 1984. Oh yeah, and that kind of shit is great. And I wish that we were still in a place where something like that would shock or would would draw in a crowd. The flip side of that, though, is that James Cameron still is trying to recapture that lightning in a bottle. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Oh, yeah. Because he's actually bad at every other part of making a movie. He, as far as character development, writing, directing actors, any of it, he sucks. He is phenomenally bad at it because he is so busy. <laughs> playing with his toys. Like that's what he wants to do. I definitely think it stops him from being the better director that he could have been. Had he not gotten a bajillion dollars and this like little kid attitude of like, let's go explore the Titanic and blah, blah. You know what I mean? Like all that kind of stuff. Yeah. If he were, if he were in the same circumstances as like Paul Verhoeven, like we would probably get some more interesting films from him. But I also think that Cameron has really pushed. And I agree. James Cameron not the coolest dude, but James Cameron has consistently pushed the envelope with special effects and cameras and all of that, and has actually done quite a bit of great work for undersea diving. 
So let's all not forget that. Like, he may be a jerk, which in my understanding from what I've read about him, he's a total jerk and very, very egocentric. But I do think that his drive to do that, which I totally agree with you, Liam, there is a whole lot of like, I want to play with my new toys, which is come to drag his career down for sure this early in this era it was much more about creating a good story and an interesting movie with those toys i don't actually think so i would have before before going back and watching it yesterday i would have yielded the point on that but i was actually surprised at how bored i was with this movie I was bored to tears through most of it because as Dan said, the editing is poor. I'll concede the editing point. Really? The, the editing is poor. The acting not great. It's okay. It's serviceable. Dude, Michael Bean's acting is phenomenal. Okay. I I think the acting is fine. When he is telling stories about the future and he is warning Sarah and he's telling her what happened. You could not get a better performance out of that actor. And I think he's a great actor. He's actually really underused. He kind of decided to raise kids and have a family. And so he just did not become a leading man after the 80s. I wish he had. But yeah, he delivers the shit out of some of those lines and does a really good job. He's not bad. I'm just saying that like none of the acting is spectacular. It's fine. Arnold sells a machine better than probably anybody could have at that time. I would have liked to have seen Lance Henriksen's treatment of the Terminator. I was actually thinking I would have liked to see him more machine-like. Just a, a touch. He was a little too... When it was his real head moving, I thought he was a little too loosey-goosey. When it's, when it's, his, when it's his, his fake head, the way they have to move that is how I would think that his head would probably have moved more. Does that make sense? So some of those... Well, let's talk about the special effects because, again, there's a lot of great and there's a lot of terrible in here. I know from watching making of stuff that him and Cameron talked a lot about how to do the acting for the robot and how to treat the character. And Arnold was very specific and deliberate in his movements. The idea was to make it smooth, not jerky, but still super efficient. So he only moved things when they needed to move the way he shoots the guns, the way he wields them, the way he turns his head when he's looking for them in the parking garage, when he's driving the cop car and he does that scan where he turns his eyes first and then his head follows. Like that was a very deliberate move to do the scanning in as robotic a matter as possible. Right. It's an economy of movement that you would feel that feels natural for that type of character. Yeah. Economy and efficiency I think that the disparity that you see between the movements in the animatronic head, for example, as well as the eyeball scene, is actually just the technology of what they were building not keeping up with what they had actually developed for the character. Now, one could argue they should have done a better job of blending those things from both ends because I put a lot of that on the editing. I mean, I don't know. It's hard to come up with an excuse to why they couldn't match the skin color of the mirror scene with the dummy head better than <laughs> to Arnold's real skin color because it's like way more pale white. And so when when the, when it cuts, you can just totally see that. Again, when it comes to poor editing, that's a great example of a scene that honestly, I think I could even fix. Like, I don't... <laughs> is, is the fake Arnold head, is that a thing that pops up in a lot of other movies? Because again, I haven't seen this 
in probably 20 years. And the only thing I really remembered about it was the nudity. But I feel like I've seen that specific fake Arnold head many times before. Is that like... I don't think that... No, that one is not reused because in T2, the the quality of the effect is way better. And it's mostly like a bust of Arnold. It's his whole upper body when he's like being drilled with bullets and stuff like that. And, you know, pieces of flesh are flaking off and you see the metal underneath. Like weird shit's always happening to Arnold's head in these movies, like total recall and like the eyes bug out. Like, cause it's, it's good for the effects. It allows right. them to show their skill. But that scene, all they had to do is not spend as much time with the dummy head in the mirror. They started very smartly with Arnold's real head and you see him from a profile view and he's cutting into his eye. It looks real because it is real, right? He's holding like a sheep eye or something in his hand and you can't see that eye. And then he plops the eye out and it's like, yeah, your imagination's doing all the work. And then they show you the head. And my impression has always been, dude, Stan Winston was excited about this movie his whole team's been working their asses off for months on this head. They probably argued with the director about how many seconds it was going to be on screen. But for the five total seconds that it's on screen, the effect would look a lot better if they'd cut that down to like one and a half. If they had done more old school stuff from perspective and just using the real Arnold, that scene would have been much smoother and looked a lot better. If you take out the full head in the mirror and just focus on the eye movement, the mechanical eye with the red light, which is which looks great and with the sound effect really sells it, you could have edited that into a much more real feeling scene. Or they could have just gotten Rick Baker to do the effects, I'll say it. Not everybody Rick Baker can't do everything. And I think Stan Winston Yes, he can. I think Stan Winston Rick Baker can do whatever he goddamn wants. Well, that's true. But he doesn't have <laughs> enough time. He didn't have enough time to do every movie. He passed the howling off to his understudy to do American Werewolf in London. Well, I mean, and American Werewolf in London is but the editing, I just I can't get on board with you guys saying the editing is bad. Oh, come on. I can I, I have lots of other examples here. I have an example. Okay, okay, let's hear it. Well, no, you guys talked about, and I love how, like, because I also have a horror movie podcast, you guys relish in pointing out when things are like a horror movie before I can. We do. Um, like, I, <laughs> I try to, like, sit back in the cut a little bit, but then you guys just go, like, barging right in. But, no. We do it for you, Liam, for you. It did occur to me that this has a lot of horror, could potentially have some good horror elements to it, but they fucked up the editing. Where there is action tension, they could have added a whole extra element of fear to it in, I mean, honestly, like how much they show Arnold, they show Arnold an awful lot, mm -hmm. but in all of these things, like there are instances where we're seeing Arnold and then we're cutting back to them in the car and Arnold is chasing them on a motorcycle or on a, in a another vehicle mm -hmm. and it keeps cutting back and forth to them. Whereas if you stayed in the car with them and you saw him slowly getting closer until you realize that it's actually him, like there's stuff you can do like that. Yeah, I agree. There was one shot where she, I think it's after the, the car crash and she sees him get up from like far away mm -hmm. where they showed that for like a half a second before they cut into Arnold again. And I was like, motherfucker, keep the camera back. Keep it back and just have her watch that whole thing play out. Don't do the cuts. Just let it play out and you watch him from far away. 
that because he's almost all in like he's silhouetted. It's so much better that way. But you fucked it up. But this isn't a horror movie in the in the director's idea. No, it's it's not. But he came so close. Like it's it's like half a horror movie. And in the eighties, it would definitely not have been considered that. No, but if he had put in some more of those elements, or or rather committed to the elements that were there inherently in the script and in the action, it would have been a better movie. It would have been a more interesting movie. It would have been a more tense movie. Like tension in a movie is never bad. I don't know that audiences would have been able to accept that at that time. The genres were much more harshly defined at that time period, and Cameron was very much making an action film. He was making an action sci-fi film that really blurred the line between those two genres anyway. Exactly. Action sci-fi horror. The sci-fi aspect of it is is the thing that makes it is the thing that makes it different. Besides, this is already after Alien. Yeah, but he wasn't involved with it at that point. No, but this is five years after Alien when Alien already blended action, sci-fi, and horror. And he's not Ridley Scott. No, he sucks. He does not. He he does not have the balls of Ridley Scott, who sometimes that's good for Ridley Scott. Sometimes it's bad. Sometimes it doesn't work for Ridley Scott, but God damn it, the man's always trying. He is. He is always trying. That's true. We'll get into Alien versus Aliens later in the series, too, which will be I'm interesting. Sure. And that's where you get a real head-to-head between Scott and uh, Cameron. So because Cameron is, he really showed his skills. All of his potential really showed his ass. is on display <laughs> in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> so I I was really impressed as someone who's watched a few Cameron movies and is an avid action movie fan. As I watch this, I was like, I can see all of what Cameron is going to become. All of the good and bad, because like his dialogue does not get better. It gets worse. But his direction gets better. His way of telling stories improves depending on your perspective of Cameron. And I would be entirely remiss if I did not bring up how fucking awesome Sarah Connor is in this. Like, she's great in T2, and we'll talk about it, but she is so fun to watch and so realistic and just, at least for me, I really empathize with her. And Linda Hamilton just does a fantastic job with making her be sympathetic, but not like, Oh, woe is me. I must be saved by the strong hero. Mm-hmm. Like, she's the one who kills the Terminator in the end. And Kyle Reese helps her get there, but she's the one who takes on that mantle of power and decides to raise her son and make all this happen. And Linda Hamilton deserves all the props for that because women as stars in action movies in the 80s, you know, there was her and then Sigourney Weaver. They're the two big ones from the 80s and 90s for sure. Princess Leia. Princess Leia, but she wasn't looked at in the same way as either of these. Like she was, she was viewed as very strong, but not the badass that Linda Hamilton becomes, and definitely not what Ripley is, where she's an intense survivor and not as principal. Like she's not like the main character, right? God, I was gonna somehow end up leaving this episode without talking about Sarah Connor, which is hilarious, and my girlfriend was going to murder me. So thank you for bringing the character up because she certainly deserved to be talked about. Right. And I just love her and I love Linda Hamilton and anything really. But I don't think this movie would have worked without her skills, without her vulnerability and her hidden strength that comes through. Without all of that, like this movie falls down because if you can't like Sarah Connor, 
it's only going to be a superficial enjoyment because she's she's the hero of this movie, a reluctant hero almost, at least for me. And again, I'm a woman watching an action film. I take my I take my lady representation where I can get it. And I love that Cameron at least was willing to do that, was willing to give Linda Hamilton the opportunity to play such an interesting character who is not entirely dependent on the men around her to save her life. So it's a classic and it should be a classic despite Liam's anti-Cameron stance. (laughs) (laughs) Let's hear it, Liam. Liam didn't walk out of the room. So we're, you know, there's that. We're doing all right. I was, I was going to start by saying something else, but I'm going to have to wrap up with that because I have to so, so, so fervently disagree uh, with everything you just said about Sarah Connor. (sighs) Okay. The core of the character in this movie, not talking about what she does later, because I understand that she's a badass in T2. Right. We're talking about this movie only. I get it. This movie only. The core of her character is literally a baby factory who needs a man to save her. That is the that is that is her part and parcel. She at no point until Kyle Reese is already dead, at no point does she pass the sexy lamp test. She drives the car. Oh, please. She drives the car and crashes it. You could have handed the the wheel to the sexy lamp and it would have run straight into a wall anyway. Like she doesn't do anything. Lamps don't bite. That's the point where it switches. It doesn't, though. That, to me, is the point where it switches, because then Kyle is is not nearly as able to do so much, and she's the one driving him forward. He's not, but it's still his responsibility. No, she's literally propping him up. Mm. She's like Her job is literally support at that point. So if you want to go from being the damsel in distress to being a crutch for the dude who's supposed to fight the Terminator... Like, sure. But like she it's in this movie with the with the one exception of they give her the final kill. Apart from that, she's definitely a final girl. Yes, she's she's more of a final girl to go back to the horror trope. She's more the final girl than the hero. She is. But I think of the final girl as the hero in the movies can be. But if she was the hero, then it wouldn't have taken her the whole movie to emerge as the final girl. In in your traditional slasher, dude, she's a character girl. She's a twenty year old that works at a burger joint and is like going on dates on Friday night. And this dude from the future comes back and tells her that she's basically responsible for saving all of humanity. And by the way, I don't see as being pregnant and having a child as some kind of lessening. Or in fact, I view that as. Like a really exceptional thing. I'm not saying that it's not feminist to have kids. The other thing of that is that he tells her, and here's here's my big dispute with what you're saying, Liam, is that it's not just that she has John Connor. It is clearly stated in the text of the film that she is the one who trains John Connor, that he John Connor gets his info. He learns how to do the things he does. From her specifically. And that distinction is a big deal. She's not just, you know, a vessel for him. She's also the person who makes John Connor into who he is, according to Kyle Reese in this film. Right. And they have to show that transition. They needed her to be just a normal 
20 year old, you know, but there wasn't going to be a second movie when this one was made. There wasn't a second movie until like eight years later. Right. And so it's not like, sure. Yeah. You can get, you can fix it with a throwaway line and dialogue. That's probably where the punch up writer came from. But like, (laughs) but you know what I'm saying? Like it's, there's nothing that she does that makes her an exceptional feminist character. And not to say that it is not feminist to have a baby, especially out of wedlock in the eighties. But like, that is like when a man is writing a script and the, the, the core of the character is that she has to be saved by the hero and she has to have a baby. I think that's a little bit problematic, isn't it? Or at least we can't praise it as being this forward thinking thing. She's not Ripley in this movie. Dude, you got to consider what else was being made at this time. There was a better example made five years earlier. Yeah, but that was a that was considered a one off. And her character was not written as a woman. Her character was written as a man. And they just cast Sigourney Weaver in it. And that makes a huge fucking difference. They were going to cast a man in it. And Scott decided they were going to cast her because he was so impressed by her. But I agree with you, Liam. It is problematic to have it be that she is the the birth mother of the savior. But I think that Cameron's including that and then making the choice to have her, to show that growth that she has, where she then becomes the person who's able to train John Connor, which is mentioned, which all you need is a throwaway line for something like that. You do not need a ton of stuff because otherwise it becomes heavy with dialogue showing that character progression especially in the which is a conflict in and of itself that it's it's our boyfriend who does that for her and it's not even really the she doesn't really even go through a character arc in this movie when she kills the terminator it's because she runs away from him better when he has no legs like she crawls through the thing and then hits a button it's not like exactly empowering You know what I mean? Like, I don't think it was meant to be a feminist character. No. I think it is less anti-feminist than a lot of other characters that were existing in action movies. Sure, I'll give you that. And if we'll go for incremental progress, then we'll take what we can get. Which we do. Which, Which we do. But, and I'm sure that she is more empowered with more agency in the second film. At least that's what I've heard. Yes. But I feel like that's a retcon. Of the character that was originally portrayed here. Mm. I think they. No. And again, I, think I haven't seen it. When you see T2, it, it, is, it is earned. That is an earned thing. And as someone who also agrees that James Cameron is not the best writer, this is one of the few areas where I got to give it to him because his his female characters are much better on the whole than a lot of what was being made then and even what's being made now, honestly. And none of the empowerment would work without the setup. What would you have had her do for the first half of the film? This wasn't a setup for something. They had no idea that this was going to be a franchise. I'm talking about even for a setup for the end of the film. Right. The final moments of the film where she is she is the one who she's, where she's pregnant. Okay, Liam, you make it better. How would you have written the Sarah? No, I want to hear it now. How would you have written the character of Sarah Connor? I would not have her hiding under a desk. Why? Yeah, why? That that dude just killed 30 fucking cops. You would be hiding under a desk. So would I. Same. I would not be. I'm a feminist as fuck, and I wouldn't be doing How that. How is that a, a misogynistic move? She's, uh, okay, no, hang on one second. Hang on one second, because I'm not saying 
that it's a wildly misogynist movie. I'm saying that it's wrong to look at her in this movie as some kind of feminist icon because she sure as shit isn't. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to say this. I, I have done a lot of study and research about this kind of thing and have, have looked into this in film. She abso-fucking-lutely is a feminist icon in film because in 1984, that is not a role that women were given. You did not get to be that. Like, Linda Hamilton walked so Mila Jovovich could fucking run. But be what? Like, she didn't do anything. She kills the Terminator. She pushed a button. She kills the thing that killed everybody in the film. She survives right. and goes on to save humanity. After it was half blown up for her. Like, it's crawling to her. It's like she, <laughs> was, she was just as necessary in all those scenes with Kyle at, in the second half of the film. Right. He couldn't have done any of that stuff without her. And it was revolutionary at the time to show even that. In the same way that Halloween is revolutionary because Jamie Lee Curtis survives and is like, like, you know, sets the trope for the final girl. Like Jamie Lee Curtis is a feminist hero. Also happened well before this. Yes. But that's a horror movie. Not, not this. So? Like an action. Well, it's a, it's a schlocky horror movie where the same kind of tropes that are acceptable in mainstream films can be pushed a lot more, you know, a lot more in Halloween. Yeah. But it's basically the same premise as far as like the, the overly macho unstoppable killer is after the girl who has to run away and then maybe kills him. Folks. I just love that. I have to point out right now that me, the feminist film critic who I literally advertised this shit in my bios is discussing with is is arguing with Liam about whether or not Sarah Connor is a feminist fucking icon. I no, I understand <laughs> that this is coming off as a little mansplainy, probably. Like I I'm I'm Such a little bit. I'm out of my lane, but like I can't I it, like there is nothing in this movie that first of all, there's nothing in this movie apart from the special effects that's exceptional. <laughs> I watched this movie once 20 years ago and watching it for the second time yesterday, I realized why I hadn't watched it in 20 years. It, this movie does so much nothing for me across the board. Okay, let's let Dan have his piece here. We've we've argued enough about the feminist qualities of this. Dan? Well, I still want Liam to go home and rewrite this character and I want to see what he comes up with. But anyways... <laughs> Well, no, because next we're going to watch Terminator 2 and we'll see how he writes it better. Let's hear it, Dan. I want to know what your thoughts. So part of the problem here is both the influence of T2 and the fact that Liam hasn't seen it yet. Because it's really, really difficult to extricate the character of Sarah Connor from the second film. And I'll certainly admit that, that part of her arc, it's like really difficult to cut off her arc just at the end of this movie because you kind of know what happens and some of that is given to you in this film because the plot goes well past probably a time where she's dead in terms of the future. So you kind of know a bit about her character and what she's done, etc. even though that's not like the main plot of the story. I would say let's revisit this character after we've seen the second film, but that's fine. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to let Liam's impressions lay at the end of this film because that's what we're talking about. Thank you again, Katie, for bringing up this character because I, for some reason, may have forgotten to even talk about her, which would have been a travesty. I wasn't going to let that go. Mm -mm. <laughs> going back to some of the editing, because again, I can point out some actual mistakes that I don't think technically anyone could argue with. 
Go back and watch the scene where the Bronco flips. Kyle Reese is injured. She's trying to drive it. They hit the divider or something. It flips over. I don't know if this is the correct term for this, but that's what it sounds like to me. There's a female Wilhelm scream when the Bronco first flips. It's like very obviously not Linda Hamilton and very obviously like a canned sound effect. One second later, when the Bronco then lays down, they play the same exact goddamn female Wilhelm scream twice in a row in like two seconds. And I was like, okay, who in the audience didn't catch this? But who fucking doing quality control on this editing didn't catch that? That was terrible. That's but that's not the editor. That's the sounder. That's the the sound designer who makes those choices. Not the editor. That's sound editing, though. Yeah, I'm not like we're talking when I talk about editing and generally in film and my apologies. There's film editing and there's sound editing. Right. Those are two incredibly different fields and they are very different jobs. And so film editing, when we talk about it in a film, that's what I'm talking about. Fair enough. Remind me, though, sound editing versus sound design. Sound editing is the creation of the sound effect. Sound design is putting it in or is it switched? The other way around. Think about it like this. So you have two different roles in this for camera work. You have the cinematographer, which I will hear no objections to the cinematography in this. It's fucking amazing. Like so many close ups, all of that. It's integral to the pacing of this film. So the cinematographer shoots everything and the director directs everything, as it were. The film editor takes all of that and then edits the movie. With sound, the sound designer does the Foley work, picks which effects, all of that stuff. And then the sound editor puts it all together and makes sure that everything lines up and makes sure it all works. So the sound editor edits the sound designer's contributions. Okay. Sorry I wasn't more specific, but both editors fucked up at different points in making this film. <laughs> the The other thing, which is... Pro- so I'll bring up one more criticism of the effects, and then I'll talk about a few of the great things of the effects. You guys can jump in when you want. I don't want to take over here, but I've studied these things closely because I've I come prepared to defend this movie overall. But again, I'm objective. I'm happy to shit on the things it doesn't do well. So you notice that Arnold gets a limp after he gets run over by the semi, That limp was actually part of the design because it made the stop motion easier because it gave you a stop point in the in the walking that you could you knew when the cycle of walking was starting over because you were at the end of like the drag point of that leg. So that was built into the plot to make the design of the stop motion walking of the full endoskeleton easier to do. Now, again, I think for people who don't watch enough stuff, not us, but I'm saying for the average in the public who looks at something with stop motion, it's very easy, especially if you're younger, maybe you're 15 or something, watch this movie now and you're like, oh yeah, you know, in 1984, uh, stop motion wasn't that good. But you would be wrong if you go back and look at, again, the greatest example, which is Metropolis. If you look at the opening scene of Metropolis, which Blade Runner takes a lot of inspiration for visually, by the way, 1927. You know, maybe these effects were being done in 24, 25, something like that. By the great Fritz Lang, yeah? Fritz Lang is a director. That beginning scene where they show you the whole city Mm -hmm. and there are cars moving around and planes flying around. Now, granted, the planes movement is a little strange because we're so used to seeing planes. We kind of know what normal planes look like. Those kind of look like they're on a string or something like that. But when you look at the cars and all the stuff in the background, none of that stuff is jerky. It's super smooth. It looks like real movement. 
Of course, that's just a matter of putting enough frames in there. The more frames you put in there, the smoother it's going to be. All those frames take time. When you're doing a huge set like that, you're, you have 30 people. At the time, Fritz Lang had like German artisans who were like meticulous and like that's what they did. Yes. The effects expert for Metropolis is Eugen Schuftan. That's the guy who pioneered all of that stuff. Fritz Lang directed the film, but that's the person who did the work and made it all come together. Yeah, yeah, of course. I think Liam was just bringing up who the director uh, yeah, was. Yeah, director of Metropolis. Yeah. And Lang is great. I mean, Ray Harryhausen did better than some of the stuff in in Terminator as well. Right. And I and this is a matter of stretching a dollar and making yes. the budget work. I, I got to give Cameron a little bit of leeway here in that when you're taking $6 million and you're scrounging money left and right, you don't have the background to prove to everyone this is going to be successful. It's kind of like there's a lot of hope here that this does well, but you don't know. And by the end of it, Brad Fidel in his garage is making the soundtrack because as usual, as per usual, that's the last thing to be done. They had no money. You know, the scene where Arnold punches out the window of the station wagon, that was like guerrilla filming when they didn't have a permit. They were looking for cops and it was just Cameron with a camera and they must have owned the car, but he was like, okay, just go do it. Go punch out the window. He's like, what do you mean punch out the window? He's like, just go. He punched out the window of an actual car. That wasn't safety glass or anything. (laughs) And that was like, I think that was the last thing they filmed. My point being, some of these things are not, it's not like, oh, the director's a dumbass. It's more like, oh, they're out of money. And you're kind of like trying to get the scene you have to get to finish this film. So I think they should have allocated, if they knew, if they storyboarded this and they knew how much they were going to show the hallway scene with the full endoskeleton coming after them in stop motion. They should have left more budget for that scene because had they made it smooth, it would have looked a lot better. So I'll concede those points. There's definitely parts of the effects that have aged poorly and I wish that they had spent their money differently. In terms of what they did really well, the animatronic, when it's mostly either just the torso or just the legs, that shit looks amazing. It does. I mean, for the time, that thing is terrifying it looks real. It looks like it is going to kill and crush everything in its way. And it is really scary. All those, again, matter of editing. They should have just done more of that or just showing him less and not doing as much of the full body stop motion. Like the scene with Kyle Reese in the factory where he slams him with the lead pipe. They could have definitely shot that differently to just have the upper body torso and it would have looked so much better. So those are choices out of necessity or just out of how things worked out or mistakes that they made that ended up making things look not as good as they could have. Have you guys considered, you may not even think about it, but speaking of what turned him, what what burned all the flesh off of him and turned him into the endoskeleton, that truck chase and that explosion scene. Mm -hmm. Think back to that explosion scene with the truck exploding. Like, do you remember anything about how that scene looks? Oh, it's so it's so well done. Liam? I don't have anything in particular to say about it, honestly. Like, I was worried for Linda Hamilton as a person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, sure. Being that close to a moving truck, but. Right. I'm sure they were, obviously they used the tricks probably of just going really slow and then making it look much faster in camera. But so. The scenes from the cab and the scenes of them running are obviously done with a real semi. When they went to blow it up, that scene is filmed in front of like the police armory in LA that stores like all kinds of weapons and like helicopters and stuff. So they could not get permission because he wanted to blow that real semi up, of course, because he's camera. And they couldn't get the permits to blow the truck up on location there. 
So they built like a one-eighth scale model of the entire block, including the truck. And then they had the pyro team blow that truck up using, they had to do it twice because they had a mishap the first time and the explosion set off. And I think actually they were pulling the model and the pulling device ripped the front axle out of the truck and they had already activated the explosion. So that happens. And then the truck blows up and they're like, fuck, because they had to redo the whole thing. Oof! Somebody got fired for that mistake. And they didn't, but they were definitely stressing out. But the entire building behind it is all a scale model and you can't tell. Um, I mean, even going back and knowing that you can't tell it's so well done. And the explosion is actually, I think it was either 24 or 48 small explosives that started from the back and worked their way up to the front all in the span of like one second, maybe. And they blew them all sequentially. And that sequence is masterfully done. Like that explosion scene, the whole model, that looks really, really great. And explosions are like water are not easy to scale necessarily. I mean, so I looked it up and in today money, $6.8 million is $17.5 million. Wow. So this would still be small budget. Mm -hmm. Oh, for sure. In today's money, you could not shoot an action movie for that price. Not and have it look like this. You couldn't make these special effects in today's money with $17.5 million. Adam Sandler gets fucking 40 million for his trash movies. Mm -hmm. No judge if you like Adam Sandler, but no, she's judging you. (laughs) Maybe a little. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. Well, that's one thing about Cameron is he definitely knows how to stretch a dollar and make a budget work. And he doesn't really put anything on screen that isn't necessary. I mean, again, yeah, there's issues with the editing and stuff, but there's the, the full body skeleton is not necessary. I would argue, but. I think he just really wanted that in there. Yeah, yeah. I think you guys are looking at this from today's eyes. It's like if you're trying to judge Final Fantasy X on a PS5. Like, it's going to look like trash. Uh, No, but I explained why that's not the case. Like, because I'm comparing it to a movie from 1927 or the 50s. Like, the stop motion is objectively bad. The budget is different. The budget is different, and you are working with much, much different cameras much different cameras. Old cameras from the 20s are not going to show things in the same way that cameras do now. You're not looking at nearly like the resolution size and all of that. And so it, for me, at least, this is just me, and I can totally understand how you wouldn't feel that way. But for me, like the special effects are so fantastic. And when it came out, when I read the reviews, because I read like six, seven reviews about this movie from 1984, more than one compared it to Ray Harryhausen about how great the special effects were and how blown away audiences were by this at the time because it was just so convincing. Because, I mean, look at something like Jurassic Park. Like, Jurassic Park was considered a marvel of its day. And it still holds up really well. Mm-hmm. But you can still kind of see the rough edges. So I think that's more... I think the special effects in this for me are more... They suffer because of the time period and because of the budget, as opposed to any particular choices made by the people in it, because they wanted to show as much as they could for this. And rather than feeling like they're skimping, like they knew how revolutionary this would look to people. So they viewed it at the time, I'm sure, as like, look at how awesome this is. It's kind of like in John Carpenter's um, Escape to New York how that initial fly-in scene is all its all supposed to be done on a computer, but it's all actually like green wires that are like 
spray painted and with a black mat afterwards. So it's really a we're looking at this from are we almost 40 years on or are we 30? No, it's almost 40. No, it's almost, 40. Almost 40. Oh, my God. So here's the I get that and I agree to a certain extent, but I am going to fight you a little bit on Jurassic Park because because, you know, that's what we're talking about here. <laughs> But in comparison, and in the comparison, all of, of the things that Spielberg, I can, I, I have issues with Spielberg. When the shark wasn't working in Jaws, he just didn't show the shark, right? You know what I mean? Like he has that kind of self-reflective, uh, or like he, he can turn that ed- self-control, that editing eye onto himself, and say, "Hey, this isn't working. We got to cut it." Hundred percent, and that's a great difference between Spielberg and Cameron, right there. Yes, and the stuff in Jurassic Park. The reason why Jurassic Park works so well is because of how much of the dinosaur he doesn't show you at once. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. That's very true. Like he knows when to pull back. He knows when something's not working. He knows when something's just not going to cut it. And he finds a way to work around it. Whereas James Cameron is like, fuck it, the skeleton. Yeah, woo, let's go. That being said, if you consider all of the effects, what worked well, what didn't work as well, and the reasons behind that, when you go back to the future war scene from the very beginning, when you look at how they made that and consider the budget and all the different types of effects and composition that they put in that, I give that like a solid nine and a half for its day. So I'll tell you one thing that really did work for me as far as something that caught my eye as far as a practical effect that I really enjoyed seeing mm-hmm. in part because we've talked about this in uh, it, it was a it was a criticism that I had of the outpost mm, the explosion which is during the chase scene the explosions but also like when he's throwing the bombs at him in the chase scenes and they're like landing near him and blowing up and he's running and he's like riding the motorcycle through them uh, like it there felt like there was danger there you know what I mean mm-hmm. I'm sure that it was a pretty safe stunt as far as stunts of that nature yes, go. Right. They were throwing some kind of smoke bomb at him. Cameron was... is known for doing very safe stunts. Wait, hold on. Was Katie being sarcastic on that one? No, Cameron is known for taking his safety on set very, very, very seriously. He's also he's... known for doing some crazy ass shit, but we'll, we'll talk about that in T2. The Abyss. The Abyss. Okay. He almost died making The Abyss. And since then, he's taken that shit super seriously. But like when he's riding through those, it was probably like a pre-planted smoke bomb. It wasn't even one that they were throwing at him necessarily. I'm sure. If I were to guess, Mm. they probably had them like set to go off at a certain point that like hit it and then he'd like drive through it. But it looked real and... Because of the because of the time, because you know it's a practical effect, you get that element of danger to it. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the outpost, I'm pretty sure some of those explosions were just CGI that were like or or enhanced by CGI in some way. Do you know what famous tunnel they are driving through in that scene? No, but I'd have never been to LA. Is it the Fort Pitt tunnel? Goes across the uh Monongahela River? No? No one? Okay. <laughs> Somebody in the audience somewhere is going, yeah, I know that. (laughs) The tunnel they drive through, which you actually get to see the beginning, the full tunnel and the and the end of the tunnel. Although I think where eventually they crash the Bronco and that bridge that they're on and all that is not anywhere near that tunnel. So that's like shot in a different location. That's a second street tunnel downtown L.A. 
which Blade Runner has a very, very famous... I mean, it's been in a ton of films, but probably most famously in Blade Runner because it has that reflective quality to those white tiles. The way they reflect light is really cool. And so as a cinematographer, you can... It, it it's, looks totally different in Blade Runner, but it's got those sort of cement slabs that are done kind of artistically at the beginning and shoot out at different lengths at the entrance and exit. And you can mm, see that. Yep. And then the very reflective white tile. That's why you can recognize it. I've walked through that tunnel. It's kind of... In bad shape nowadays, but in the 80s, it was like the tunnel to film scenes in. It was super cool and fancy. You know, I got to throw in something about Blade Runner every episode. You got to. <laughs> yes. But to go back to that initial uh, war scene. Yeah. So that was a combination of a bunch of different things, but pretty much all practical effects. They did use a big model for the wide shots it reminded me a lot of the hades landscape from blade runner that really scott famously well, that team put together douglas trumbull etc except again this looked pretty good at a much lower budget so it's a combination of forced perspective a lot of smoke to help with the with the depth perception and all that so sort of some of the dilapidated buildings in the background are just 2d facades that they put in the back and then the vehicles and all that stuff is mostly scale models. I'm not sure if the HKs are just the flying machines or if also the treaded machines are called HKs. Regardless, uh, those are all scale models. And I don't know if any of that was stop motion. I think that was all real live motion. The flying machines were on wires and the treaded vehicles are scale models. And what they did is like most of the skulls are like two inch skulls. But then they would put like, you know, third size or third scale skull right at the fr uh, in the foreground of the camera mm. and kind of just go back from there. So you'd get the smaller skulls, the machine running them over, the silhouettes in the background, the smoke, the lights, and then the flying machines. And so it all layers together to give you this pretty realistic feel. I think that similarly to Aliens, the things that stand out to me that remind me that it's an effect is the um, rear projection. There's some rear projection. Like when you see Michael Bean and the female soldier running around, there's some rear projection shots there. When they get in the scene right after she's killed, when he successfully throws the grenade and it lands in front of the tread, that's a, like a two-inch grenade. They had to do, I, I think the guy says, uh, one of the pyro guys says that was the 26th take when they finally got that grenade to land where it <laughs> needed to land. So yeah, Huge teams, a lot of work to make that look good. Liam, you'll appreciate that they explain a lot in the behind the scenes stuff on how they got the explosions to look right and scale properly. Nice. And, you know, they were explaining how often, depending on what pyro you're using, you'll get the orange in the explosion that you need, but it kind of fizzles out right away and you don't get the nice plume of smoke and all of that. And so the way they achieve that, first you have to light it properly um, and they use special lights position to get it to reflect correctly. And then actually uh, walnut powder. So really finely ground up oh. walnut is what they used in the explosion because once- Hope you don't have any allergies. Right. Once that spreads out, this is similarly to tests that like Mythbusters have done with sawdust once sawdust or walnut dust in this case spreads out like that, it becomes extremely flammable because you light some of it. It's basically a really tiny piece of flammable, you know, wood essentially. And it causes a chain reaction that gets that entire cloud to blow up in a fireball. Flour and explodes that's what the they, same way. That's why bakeries and like flour mills have, they've, they've exploded throughout history. 
random moment of Minnesota history, there is the Mill City Flower Museum that I have been to so many times that is literally 15 minutes from me. And is literally the only thing to do in Minneapolis. (laughs) (laughs) Nah, bro. You you have never been here. There's a million awesome things to do in Minneapolis. Yeah, there's the biggest ball of twine in Minnesota. Weird Al sang about it. That's... That's not in Minneapolis. That's that's somewhere else. But that actually happened, and that's where that that's one of the biggest incidences of that. And you can go in there and you can see the exploded remains of a flower fire, and it's interesting, very crazy. Yeah, small particles when they when they atomize like that, they become extremely flammable. So they're great for pyrotechnics. So I wanted to say, you guys have talked about your problems with the with the special effects here. For me, I really liked almost all of it. The very last scene, that matte painting that she's driving into. Oh, Jesus oh, fucking yeah, Christ. Terrible. Is the worst fucking Why matte did they painting even bother I have ever seen. Doing that. It's like it's, it's like, like in the Matrix this? when it's like they spent like the the entire budget of the Matrix and then they're gonna close the movie with this shot of like basically a cardboard cutout of Keanu Reeves that they the like right. shake at the camera. Like, what the fuck? Like, why do they do that? I, and there's a ton of matte paintings in the film. And like, I, I watch for them because I think they're fascinating. But that one happened. I was like, really? You, really? You must, this must have been like the very end of the Where's budget. Where's she going? The never ending story? Like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> I did like the way the clouds move in front of the matte painting, though. That was a cool effect. Yeah, that's well done. But those mountains are not real. Not really. I also don't think they're there because they're like, I think that's like in Joshua Tree. You can see the Joshua Trees everywhere. Oh, okay. I would completely eliminate that ending pretty much. But Cameron has to have three endings to all his movies. So it's like, oh, the truck blew up. We're safe. Dun, dun, dun. Terminator comes back to life. Like, oh, I crushed the Terminator. Movie's over. Nope. Now we're going to cut to pregnant Sarah with a terribly written voiceover, et cetera. Yeah, I'm not a huge fan of the ending. And the picture. We're going to identify the picture. That I did like that touch because it I like that calls back to the future picture. And I like the way he describes the picture. I don't know why they didn't pick a little Mexican boy that spoke Spanish better than that kid, because he's like very obviously like a, a Hispanic American kid who has an accent like you could hear it. The older guy is a native Spanish speaker and he has an accent in English. But the little kid, if you're a Spanish speaker, you can hear it. It's not quite right. And I'm like, he's got an American accent. I mean, it's not it's not super strong. Like, I'm sure he does speak Spanish and he's probably a Hispanic kid and grew up with Spanish in his household. But yes, he definitely has like a half American accent. And I was always like, of all the little boys in L.A. that you could have cast for that role, you could pick one that's picked because they're supposed to be in Mexico. So I'm like, you couldn't pick. Although I could also see James Cameron writing the dialogue in Spanish and like the kid thinking (laughs) that's. Not how we would choose to say this. Like, that's not how I would. Right. But okay. I guess James Cameron. Also, who the fuck sells a Polaroid for $5 in 1984? Like, Jesus Christ, kid. She's like $4. I'm like, $4? Isn't that like a full take of gas in your time? (laughs) It's such a mixed bag in some ways. And it's so amazing in other ways. And I think the biggest thing about it to me when I was watching it on this Uh, This time around, this is James Cameron's third directing job. And that's already too, too many. It's oh stop. Piranha 2 is one of them. I don't know if that was his first or his second. Yeah, Piranha 2. Which apparently Lance Henriksen is in. I need to go watch. (laughs) I've never seen it. So here's a question, not to interrupt, but while you're looking that up, did Bill Paxton have like 
whatever the the James Cameron equivalent of the Russia P tape in his possession <laughs> that he has to be in. Oh, in every terms of single, being in every James Cameron film, every like I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Is I that Bill they, Goddamn Paxton with blue and spiky hair? That's one of his hair? first roles. Of course it is because he's got the James Cameron piss tape. I think they were buddies. I think they became friends. I'm not a hundred percent sure. I don't know the story behind him getting the role in Terminator. I do remember the story of him getting the role in Aliens, which we'll talk about another day. But and, and he was waiting for the call and was super stoked and excited when he got it. So I don't think it was a foregone conclusion. But whether they became personal friends or when they became friends, I don't know. But I think it was he, like a staple a twenty dollar bill to his headshot. Like what the fuck is going on? <laughs> he here? definitely liked him as an actor. He really liked working with him as an actor. Yeah, yeah. really, really lit the scene up as blue haired, spiky headed punk number two. I mean, at this point, I have a soft spot in my heart for the poor departed Bill Paxton, so I'm happy to see him at any time he's hey, on screen. I saw Twister like three times in the theater. I love that movie. He's so good in True Lies, too. I oh, my God. Yeah, he was great in True Lies. So I, good. I love Bill Paxton as much as anybody, but like every James Cameron movie? He's not in every James Cameron movie, just most of them. Just while he was alive. Well, not now, because he's dead, but like. Right. There's going to be a CGI Bill Paxton Avatar oh 4. I don't, I hope not. <laughs> Avatar 4, they haven't even gotten two out yet. Oh, no, they're, Ugh. but they're in contract. I think it goes up to five, actually. I'm not watching any of them. The last time I looked at my release schedule, it was up to five. So Cameron directed Piranha 2, and before that, he had done a short in 1978. Okay. So this is this guy's first real big movie, and he pulls this out like. Damn, I got to give him some mad props for being a director who just has a little bit of experience. He also helped write this. And regardless of whether or not what you think of the dialogue, which I'm on record as not as thinking it's real mixed bag, like the story works really well and how the direction is done, the acting, like it all rolls together. And I think my my note about it was that Cameron is really able to craft an entertaining package. Like some parts might fall down on the job, but in general, he can put together a movie that's like you could just sit and watch it and be like, oh, this is pretty good. So, Liam, tell me how wrong I am. I'm not going to tell you you're wrong. I'm just going to disagree. One thing that I think is funny that we didn't get to, and I don't, I don't think like this argument can get really circular and there's really no objective way to win it. But I think it's funny that we never really got into the time travel paradox, like grandfather paradox of this film, which is like (laughs) front and center and all over this movie. Like if you go YouTube time travel paradoxes, the grandfather paradox is usually illustrated by Terminator. Or Futurama, when Fry's his own grandfather. (laughs) Futurama is totally aping this, but yes, I agree. But the point being that there are definitely things about this film in terms of the plot that you have to look at like lightly and not not dig into because as soon as you dig into them, they fall apart. And that that a little bit depends on how you look at time travel timelines. And whether you think that the futures are like symmetrical alternate futures or whether the future is an ever changing thing based on the actions that we see in the present, et cetera. Again, I'm not going to get all nerdy about that, but my point being, you have to take the plot at face value because if you dig into it, it just gets confusing and you're like, wait, so how did he come back? If you, what did the one thing I will say that I liked because they, 
of course played it kind of fast and loose with the time travel rules, but I do like that. I feel like the movie at least was a little bit squidgy about John Connor sending his own dad back in time to fuck his mom. Yeah, that had to be awkward. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like there was like this unspoken awkward thing where it's just like, yeah, I don't know who the father is, but uh, he gave me this picture. I don't know why he did that, <laughs> but like, you know what I mean? It's just like, everything's just like, did he just send his dad back in time to fuck his he just mom? just match made his parents. <laughs> like that's, is that weird to anybody else? It's a little weird. A lot weird. But I, I think the movie also thinks that that's a little weird too. Right. Sarah Connor is pretty obvious about the fact she's like, well, this is awkward. I will gladly give credit to the fact that unlike Back to the Future a year later, this one actually does think that it's a little weird to go back in time and get your mom laid. <laughs> well, I guess I'll, I'll close with, I mean, I think my opinions are pretty obvious here. I think that I am willing to admit most of James Cameron's flaws, or I'm admitting to, I'm willing to admit the ones that I see. There are certain things about the dialogue that I think work well, where I think Liam disagrees there. Had he only done T1 Aliens and T2, I'd be perfectly satisfied with James Cameron's career. And I would say, cool, he made three like great films that I really love. So yeah, I, I definitely have my reservations about him as a person, as a director. But I think that this film came together in all the right places for me. And I do try my best to extricate myself from my own nostalgia as much as I can. Cause in talking about film, I think that that's important and it's important to acknowledge what comes from your nostalgia. I obviously can't do it a hundred percent. I've always loved this film. I always will. I watch it, you know, 10 times a year. Maybe I think they accomplish what they were trying to do, but also didn't necessarily know how successful it was going to be and what they had on their hands. And there are some failures there based on the budget. And while I wouldn't remake this film, I would love to see what this film would have looked like with twice the budget or something like that. We also know that necessity is the mother of invention and who knows what would have happened had they just had money to throw around, you know, we can probably leave it there for our first Patreon. I got a little heated there. It did. This is the shit that you don't get to see in our regular episodes because Dan's all like, (laughs) oh man, I better not engage. But now you get in the Patreon channel and you get to see Dan get mad at Liam. It's great. I love our first episode was finally the time when our first Patreon episode is the time when my my feminist flag has to come out. (laughs) Yeah, you got to pay money to see that shit. Oh, hell yeah. Because if you're good at something, never do it for free. I am very much all about my feminist principles and film and feminism is like the perfect juxtaposition of my interests. So we're going to continue this venture with T2 because at this point, I mean, it's pretty obvious that they have to kind of be done as a one-two punch so we can get the full arc. And then I, I'm fine with not revisiting any Terminator after that. No. Well, we're not going to watch no Genesis. Genesis. <laughs> so that is the next episode that we will bring you. And again, we're doing this far in advance so that we can launch our Patreon with a few episodes in the bag already. But I would like to say to our very first patrons that are supporting Danger Close, welcome to our Patreon program, and thank you guys so much for the support. We work really hard to make both of these shows as good as they can be, all of us do, as well as Nathan, our strategic planner, and Mike D'Angelo, who helps us out a lot with uh, websites and information and a lot of the film research. 
Thanks a lot to our research team. We'll catch you guys on the next episode, and we're excited to be doing this. Thank you. Bye. Bye.